in fact, I want to start with the preface. But first, let's go back then to this, to the discussion um, of what you're thinking about the heroic couplet. So you were about to say something. Mm. Mm. Yes. Uh, anyone else? <laughs> See, it's so perfectly timed. This is what they teach us. When a conversation begins in a seminar, you cut it off immediately. And you just go through names and say silly things about people's names. And then um, the conversation just starts right back up. My apologies. <laughs> no, no, no. It's not you. It's me. Um, uh, okay. Did you want to say something? Um, the more I read, the more when he had a line that wasn't in iambic pentameter, it started to really jump out at me and sort of like bother me. Uh -huh. Not in a like, oh, what an interesting choice you made there, but in a like, oh my god, can't you just stick to the meter? Like, <laughs> What is wrong with you, well, Dryden? I was also mad at him because like, hey, let's talk about how much the Jews suck. Yeah. Like, yeah, that wasn't really my favorite to use against Brandeis, but mm -hmm. um, the meter thing actually started to like, irk me, which okay. I wasn't expecting. I thought it'd be like, oh, how interesting, and instead I was like, oh, how interesting. <laughs> See the difference in stress? Oh. Um, can you, do you, did you mark any lines? Uh, I can find Because some will actually, I think there's one, well, there's one um, defective line, which is to say that it's not a full line, and we saw one of those. Um, in the memory of Alden. And there's one line which I think is just wrong. Um, and, but some of the other lines that may seem unmetrical to you, they're actually telling you what pronunciation was like in the 17th century. Um, the same with, I, I, I'll just say this, Dryden's rhymes are usually pretty perfect. They're not absolutely pure. Um, for example, Absalom um, is pronounced, is rhymes very early on um, with, oh, no, I can't remember what it is, but rhymes very early on with a, with a letter um, beginning, <coughs> ending with N. Um, this is, um, of all this numerous progeny was none so beautiful, so brave as Absalom. And that's, that's just a folk song rhyme. Um, it's surprising to have Dryden do it, but he'll do it. Um, but generally, his rhymes are close to perfect. The person we'll read whose rhymes are always perfect, um, who made it a point of honor that his rhymes should be perfect, is Pope. And um, the one interesting historical fact about that, or linguistic fact about that, is that Pope is extremely useful for charting um, the history of pronunciation. Because if it rhymes, if it's, if it's in a couplet in Pope, those words rhymed perfectly. And if they don't rhyme to the modern ear, it's because we pronounce words differently. The one that will most jump out at you in both Dryden and Pope is line and join. Um, they pronounced it in what we would now call a Cockney way. So that you don't talk about two things joining together, you talk about them jining together. Um, you see where those two rivers join? Can you see it, governor? So they did say jine that way. Um, so, so if you see, if you see, if that seem, if that stands out as you as, as not rhyming, it did to them. Um, that was a perfect rhyme for them. Um, that's just a parenthesis. Yeah. When you said wrong, do you mean uh, as if you think Dryden made a mistake in the meter, or somehow it wasn't transcribed into our modern edition? Or no, I think either there's. In almost, I think almost any line that you're about to come up with, um, uh, um, there's there's one where I think you have to pronounce instinct right. Um, you have to pronounce um, what we would say instinct as instinct. Uh, 
um, and then the rhyme, then the line will be metrical. Um, I didn't mark these either. Yeah, heaven is a single syllable yeah. word. Um, pretty generally, it's it's single syllable at the time, um, almost like hen, but not quite. They, they quite, you know, the Tedeschi stores in Boston, those their their convenience stores. Um, you've seen them. They have one in Waltham. No, Tedeschi convenience stores. They're like store twenty four or or Seven Elevens. Um, so they used to be called L I apostrophe L Peach. Um, and so what they were, what they were called was Lil Peach. Um, and what happens is, if you see the apostrophe, you know that the Lil means little. And it's very, very hard not to read the one-syllable word Lil as two syllables. Oh, Lil Peach. Um, it's so cute, Lil Peach. Um, if there were no apostrophe, it would sound exactly the same, but your mind would process it as a single syllable. So Dryden and Milton and probably Pope pronounce, um, pronounced heaven mentally as a single syllable. Um, it wasn't heaven, it was heaven, sort of like that. There, the V was there, but it was, it was almost swallowed up um, between the E and the N. Same in Shakespeare. Um, so that's something that, that ju that's just a little bit his a history of language thing. Um, oh, here's one, um, on line 229. Uh, so if start, here's a description. Um, of um, how Charles II is really Muslim, or at least, I mean Jebusite at least, um, more than half the Whigs think so. Um, started line, um, I guess started line 208 or so. He stood at bold defiance with his prince, held up the buckler of the people's cause against the crown and skulked behind the laws. The wished occasion of the plot he takes, some circumstances finds, but more he makes by buzzing emissaries fills the ears of listening crowds with jealousies and fears. Of arbitrary counsels brought to light and prove, and, excuse me, and fears of arbitrary counsels brought to light, and proves the king himself a Jebusite. So it's proving that the very king is a traitor to the um, church and religion he supposedly leads. Weak arguments, which yet he knew full well were strong with people easy to rebel. For governed by the moon, the giddy Jews tread the same track when she the prime renews. And once in 20 years, their scribes record and then was this one of those lines, by natural instinct, they change their lord? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so if you do it in modern Merican, Merkin, if you do it in modern Merkin, that's the other meaning of Merkin. It's the American language. <laughs> um, if you do it in modern Merkin, it's by natural instinct, they change their lord, and that is completely not iambic pentameter. Um, but if you, what you can learn from this line is that the 17th century pronunciation was instinct. Um, which it still is as an adjective, although you may not know of instinct as an adjective, but sometimes people will talk about Pond's instinct with various forms of life. Um, it's like content and content. Um, content, a noun, content, an adjective. Um, at the time, instinct was um, always stressed on the stink. So if you do it that way, it's by natural instinct they change their lord, and it's perfectly fine. Mm -hmm. But the very fact that you heard that means that you really are internalizing um, the, the um, iambic pentameter, which is great. Um, were you going to say something? No. 
Okay. Um, CG, you weren't going to say something? Oh, no. No? Okay. Um, oh, okay. Sorry. I knew you were going to say something, and you just did. Um, all right. What about uh, follow? Okay. We should talk about the Jews, and we will in a second. Um, following the plot, easy, hard, footnotes helpful or a pain? Yeah. For me, it wasn't so hard because, like, I was somewhat familiar with the Bible story. Uh huh. Um, but even so, like, he definitely took liberties with the story a lot. So, like, I don't know. It was kind of like hard to like find like where he was like deviating from like what actually was written in the Bible and like mm -hmm. where he was. Okay, so. Um, I think what he would want you to think is that it's amazing how close to the Bible story he could get his, his telling of what's going on in England at the time. So um, everyone realizes that, that this is a political poem about contemporary politics, right? Um, and so that um, um, King David is King Charles, um, Absalom is who? His son, the Duke of Monmouth. Um, and Achitophel. Shaftesbury. And um, the basic idea, Shaftesbury, when um, Dryden was writing this, Shaftesbury was on trial for pushing really, really hard. Okay, so the so just, I'm sure you, you read this in the head note, but um, um, I'll mention it again. Um, Charles II, who um, was restored, hence the restoration, um, didn't have any legitimate children. Um, and because of that, after his death, it looked like it in fact was the case that his brother James, his younger brother James, was the heir to the throne because he didn't have any legitimate children. James was thought to be, and indeed was, Catholic. And um, the question that had been tormenting England um, and Scotland um, since Henry VIII, that is now for about 150 years or so, um, or a little bit more than 150 years, was whether England would be a Protestant or a Catholic country. Um, the English Civil War, which began in 1642, um, partly began because Charles I um, had married a Catholic queen, trying to reconcile differences between um, England and the continent, um, between England and Spain, between England and France. Um, and what there was a kind of middle way that the English church after Henry VIII was attempting, which was to um, produce a sort of a Protestantism that looked like Catholic, Catholicism, um, not the radical Protestantism that you had um, in Geneva and in um, other northern um, European countries, but a Protestantism where um, the king or queen would have more or less the same status in the Church of England um, that the Pope had in the Catholic Church. Um, it's still the case, in fact, it's still the case now, it's still something that's being discussed now, but it was certainly the case, very, very much the case in England at the end of the 19th century, um, that there were figures of whom Cardinal Newman was the most important who were trying to um, heal the schism, what they call the schism, between the English Church and the Roman Church. Um, there's still an idea by a lot of Church of England people that it's not 
so radically different uh, religion um, the way a lot of Protestantism is that um, it couldn't easily be mer melded and merged back with the Catholic Church. Yeah. Um, do the Ang does the Anglican Church also do those? I know the Protestant churches don't do like hands like signals and movements during their services, mm -hmm. but uh, if Anglican you mean kneeling like, things like that or and um, especially with holding your hands. And yeah, I, I less so I, as I understand it. Um, L less so, but one of the big questions was whether you should kneel or not. Um, yeah, and people would, um, uh, fights and, and battles and burnings of churches would break out depending on whether the churches were constructed um, so that there were plegias where people could kneel cushions in front of them so that they could kneel down. And um, what happened was that the um, under Charles and under Archbishop Laud, I, we, we don't have to go into, into details, but the Anglican Church became more and more ceremonial. And the Puritans were very much against all this ceremony. Um, a big thing was whether there was going to be a railing in front of the Eucharist so that um, it starts out as a holy place that, that most church members are separated from by a railing. Um, so what happens is the Anglican Church or the Church of England becomes more ceremonial and the um, radical Puritans are against this, and this is one cause of the English Civil War against Charles I, which starts in 1642. As I mentioned before, in 1649, um, Charles is beheaded, and the forces of Parliament under Oliver Cromwell win, um, and there's what's called the interregnum between 1649 and 1660, um, at which point, for various reasons, Charles II is welcomed back to London and coronated king as a Protestant and as leader of the Church of England. Um, he had been for a while with his brother in France in the court of Louis XIV, the Sun King, the most spectacular um, and usually considered the greatest king of France, um, and um, was not Catholophobic, and his brother James, in fact, was, was Catholic. Um, because Charles didn't have a legitimate heir, um, and he wasn't going to go through the whole divorce thing again, um, uh, the person who was next in line to the throne after his death was his younger brother James, who was Catholic. So all the Catholic haters in England um, were wanted him, James, um, to be excluded from um, the lineage. And the best way to do that, they thought, was for Charles to declare, um, Charles II to declare his illegitimate son Monmouth legitimate, in which case he could inherit the throne. Um, so that's the <coughs> battle that was going on um, in England at the time, there's a huge political battle that's going on. Um, and the Whig party, which does not want James II, um, but does want Monmouth to inherit the throne from Charles, is threatening to withhold any funding for Charles's government. Um, they'll shut down the government, just like Newt Gingrich. Um, they're threatening to withhold any money unless um, Charles agrees to a law and the House of Lords agrees to a law that the House of Commons actually passed, um, which would exclude James from the succession and make um, Monmouth the next king. 
Um, Charles refused to do this, and um, so trouble brewed for a while. Um, this poem is written at the is finished at the end of 1681. Um, Shaftesbury was the leader, that is Achitophel, is the leader of the faction that was trying to get Monmouth legitimated. Um, he was put on trial, and he, he was a member of parliament. He was put on trial for treason and acquitted um, basically um, a day or two after Dryden finished the poem. He'd been on trial for several months, and he was acquitted um, the same week um, that Dryden finished the poem. Yeah. So Absalom is Mon Monmouth, Charles's illegitimate son. Um, so um, what Dryden then does is writes a poem where he says, look at the biblical parallel. One reason he writes a poem saying, look at the biblical parallel, is because the radical Protestants um, whom Shaftesbury was sort of, whose, whose mantle Shaftesbury Achitophel was inheriting, um, had claimed that the English Revolution of 1642, what they call the Revolution of the Saints, was also based on a parallel to biblical stories. They said what we're doing is basically what the Kingdom of Israel did. It's a good thing. It's a right thing. God is on our side. So Dryden is writing a poem from the other side saying, no, here's the parallel. Charles is David, and um, Monmouth, who wants to be king after him, is Absalom. Um, and Shaftesbury is Achitophel, who was advising Absalom in the story. Um, in, in the um, biblical version of the story. Um, that's the basic parallel that you need to know. Um, the, the result of this was Shaftesbury was actually acquitted in the trial, um, and then he was afraid he was going to be put on trial again. So he left England and went to Holland, which was a more strongly and radically Protestant country. Um, and he died uh, soon thereafter of, of a disease that he caught um, when he got there. Um, Monmouth led another rebellion four years later, um, after his father died. Um, and James was now going to be king. Monmouth tried to stop, stop that. He lost, and he was executed. Um, Dryden, but this is all in the future when Dryden writes the poem. Um, but anyhow, that's, that's uh, Dryden says it's not all over in the preface, and indeed it wasn't all over, and that's how it finally, eh, it didn't even end then. Um, just so you know, well, I guess uh, just to know a little bit about what's going to happen afterwards is that, um, do people know what happens in 1688 after James becomes king? Is that? No, James II. Um, James I had died in 1625. So that basically what you need to know is, I'm going to skip, should I skip? Yeah, I'll skip a little bit. Is Henry VIII, um, then um, Bloody Mary. So Henry VIII is Protestant. His daughter Mary was, was known as Bloody Mary because she was Catholic and started executing Protestants right and left when she became queen. Um, when she died very young, um, her sister Elizabeth became queen. And Elizabeth was Protestant, and she reigned for 45 years. And she essentially made England into a Protestant country from then on. Um, that's called the Elizabethan Settlement. She died in 1603, and her, I guess his first cousin once removed, James I, who was king of Scotland, becomes king of England. Scotland is more radically Protestant than England is. Um, and Scotland continued um, the, the um, making England um, and Scotland, the United Kingdom of England and Scotland, um, pushed Protestantism there. Um, Charles, his son, 
had lots of personal issues for a whole lot of different reasons and wasn't supposed to be king, but his elder brother died. Um, and he was sort of weak and got into fights with parliament and took help where he could get it, which made things worse. Um, but he was still Protestant, um, but the radical Protestants were very suspicious of him and thought that he was smuggling Catholicism back into England under the name of the Church of England. Then you had the English Revolution and the Interregnum, in which Oliver Cromwell and then his son essentially governed England. Then the restoration of Charles II, still Protestant, but then his brother James II, who takes power in 1685, is Catholic. And then in 1688, so um, that this is, uh, 1688 is as famous a date in English history as um, 1776 is in American history, um, or maybe 1865. I don't know. You know, if you think of the dates in American history that matter, it's it's that really matter. 1776, um, 1861 to 1865 for the Civil War. It's 1812 for the War of 1812. 1688 is such a date for the English. Does anyone know why? Tina. Yeah, so there's so James is Catholic. He's pushing um, Catholic um, uh, doctrines. He's you know not violently, but enough that there's um, that the same people who were against him it stirs up um, all that trouble, and they um, demand that he abdicate to his daughter, who is married to William of Orange, who is um, who is who is a, a Dutch. Is he king or just prince? I think he's prince of Orange. Um, and so they land in England. They're, they're appealed to by the people. They land in England. James does, um, does abdicate. It's essentially a bloodless revolution, so it's known as the Glorious Revolution. And then you get the reign of William and Mary, hence the college um, named after them. You get the reign of William and Mary um, from 1688 to 17. 1701, is it, or 1702, um, and then their daughter Anne becomes queen, um, and then after that you get the Georges, um, and leading to our favorite George III. Um, in the early 18th century, James's son and grandson um, attempted to take power, and they were known as the pretenders to the throne. Um, that is, they had a just pretense as they thought. Pretense there doesn't mean they pretended to be king, but weren't. It meant they were claimants to the throne. So they're known as the old pretender and the young pretender. Um, and um, so this was still an issue up until around the 1740s, I think. Um, is, and the, and um, I think, isn't Braveheart about um, the young pretender? Isn't that... Um, I'm pretty sure that I actually haven't seen it, but Char, but the young pretender Charles Stewart, um, gets involved in all sorts of really interesting scrapes and adventures, and escapes from a very difficult situation by disguising himself as a woman. So there's all sorts of. It's a little bit like like the um, the heir of the Romanovs now. Um, are there any Romanovs who, who are pretending to the czardom 
in Russia. That was still going on. So these issues go on till the middle of the 18th century. Yeah. Um, feel free to gloss over this if it's um, too irrelevant, but how exactly was it that um, siblings could end up have, being like one Protestant and one Catholic if they grew up in the same house? Well, because um, it's not easy to change the religion of a country. But I think probably the best way to see it, to the best the best way to understand it is to ask um, how can siblings be Democrat and Republican, um, and um, it's the the violence of feeling. Uh, a lot of it was political because um, in England it really wasn't so much a difference in core doctrine and core belief. There were core differences in doctrine and belief, um, but they were. Um, um, they, they could be financed, um, but uh, the poli but it was largely a political issue, um, and the politics and the religions went together. Um, so that's that's too quick a way of putting it, but that's essentially how it would happen. I mean, you can see it here. That is so. To, to answer your question, or to to talk about it. Um, more relevantly to Absalom and Kitapal, Dryden started out as a Puritan, and he was actually um, had um, pretty decent office as a young man when Cromwell was. Um, this is something Johnson talks about. Remember, you you should be reading Johnson's Life of Dryden. Um, he he um, was favored in the during the Puritan interregnum. He then sort of started becoming more conservative, that is less radical, less revolutionary, um, just in time for the Restoration. Um, and then when James was king, Dryden found that he actually embraced Catholicism. Um, so Dryden became a Catholic um, in the mid-1680s. He's not a Catholic when he writes Assam and Achitophel, um, but he's certainly um, writing a poem which is about being humane. Um, and it's, it's championing um, humane ideals, and um, at least that's what he thinks it's doing. I mean, it is. He, he may be wrong about things, but he's championing humane ideals. And for Dryden, the question is, so what's the most humane, um, what would be the most humane um, social structure? What kind of religion um, or religious commitments would the most humane social structure go with? Um, and Dryden drifted towards Catholicism. A lot of people, especially those who were against his drift towards Catholicism, saw him as an opportunist. Um, but he drifted towards Catholicism and became a Catholic. Pope, who was Catholic, and that's an easy thing to remember, I think. Um, Pope, who was Catholic, when being Catholic was not that easy in England. It was certainly a minority um, view. It's like being Republican at Brandeis. Um, Pope. Um, one reason that Pope was um, extraordinarily loyal to Dryden was because Dryden had become Catholic as well. Um, not an easy thing to do after the Glorious Revolution. Not an easy thing to be after the Glorious Revolution. Um, there were loyalty oaths that um, people had to swear to to the Anglican Church after the Glorious Revolution um, that went on at least to the um, end of the 18th century. Actually, they went on a lot more. Uh, Robert Browning was still um, in the late 19th century. In the 1880s, Robert Browning 
was supposed to be appointed the poetry professor of, at Oxford, but he wouldn't take the oath because um, he was a Congregationalist and he wouldn't take the oath to the Church of England. Um, 1870s, I guess, not the 1880s. Um, so it's an issue that goes on for a long, 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 long time. And not being Church of England meant that you were um, closing off a lot of patronage um, that you could be getting from um, the universities and from the establishment. Um, so it took some courage, and being Catholic probably took the most courage um, in, in, the, in the sort of, I mean, it didn't take courage like you were going to be burnt at the stake. Um, that goes back to the 1500s, but it took courage because you weren't going to get the kinds of things that um, you might be able to get, the kinds of offices, the, kind, the kinds of um, career that you would be able to get um, if you took, did take the oath of loyalty. Johnson refused to take it as well, um, and his not taking it, he was still um, um, extraordinarily um, a looming figure of the age, but it had consequences. Um, so it's it is in in a in a state with a state religion, even as mild as it was in England and in Britain. There are consequences to not being part of that state religion. Um, the King James Bible, which I think you've all heard of, and which James, which was essentially translated under James the first. Um, here's an interesting fact about the King James Bible. It's still copyright in England. Um, you cannot, it's not public domain, even though it goes back to 1612 or so. Um, and there, I believe that there are four publishers who have the right to print it in England, and only four, and um, Cambridge University Press being one of them. So, um, but it's copyrighted in perpetuity, and that says something again, about the idea that there is this one holy book that was translated under the command of the head of England and the head of the English church, and that holy book still is the intellectual property of the king or queen of England, even now, even 300, 400 years later. Um, you, can't, um, you can't print the King James Bible in Britain um, without getting permission. So it's, it's sort of like, instead of Napster, it would be Jamester or something. Um, and you'd be in trouble, and that wouldn't be good. Okay, uh, that's really more context and more boring context than you probably wanted to know. But I think the other way around, the other way to get, get to this is just to see that um, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And the political dynamic here, even if you don't know what the issues are, um, it's a little bit like in the loop. Even if you don't know what the issues are, you can see what the political dynamic is and what the analysis of that political dynamic is. And that's the interest of the poem. Um, it's, if you're interested in the poem because you're interested in the history, that's great. Um, but most people who read Aslam and Kittafel aren't reading it for the history. They're reading it because um, the poetry um, is so well done. And the political analysis, the political theory in the poetry and the way the poem um, both um, argues for and is a kind of example of the political theory that it's arguing for um, is, again, that's, where, that's what makes the poem a work of genius. Um, you can completely disagree with Dryden about the issues. 
um, but the poem, um, and even about the politics, but the poem um, really is a work of genius. Um, it's worth looking at. I don't. Did you guys read the preface? Um, Dryden's preface. It's worth looking at. It's. Um, Doesn't he say that so himself about himself? <laughs> say what? Yes, exactly. It. Yeah, and that's why I wanted us to go to it. Yeah, so if you have, we'll, we'll just go through the preface, partly because a thing you should know about Dryden um, is that he is the inventor. He's um, largely regarded, and I think correctly regarded, as the inventor of modern English prose. Um, before Dryden, if you try to read prose written before Dryden, it's great, but it's really hard. And partly it's really hard because um, there's a, there's a plain, familiar style which Dryden um, describes. Um, and we'll read the preface to fables where, where he talks a little bit about prose style. Um, but Dryden, in addition to being you know, the great poet of the last third of the 17th century, um, is also one of the major prose writers and maybe, maybe the most influential of all prose writers for the subsequent history of English prose. And he has an easy and familiar style that is unprecedented. You won't find anything like this before Dryden. Um, when you read something like the preface, you might feel a little bit surprised that someone who's writing these closed couplets can write um, in such a graceful style. Um, what you probably don't know is that no one had ever done this before. Um, and that Dryden's conversational style um, is actually a revolution in the history of prose. So that's just an interesting fact. Um, but he writes to the reader, um, "'Tis not my intention to make an apology for my poem. Some will think it needs no excuse, and others will receive none." Um, so how does that, why would that be a typical Dryden kind of sentence? Not a typical Dryden piece of prose, but why um, that sort of um, contrast? Yeah. Um, it exhibits balance, and um, it has a verb repetition that he doesn't actually repeat. Good. Yeah. And did you notice how many of those were in the poem? Yes, lots. Good. <laughs> lots of elisions. Yeah, so some will think it needs no excuse, and others will receive none. So <clears throat> I'm not going to apologize, because those who like it won't need an apology. And those who don't like it, no apology will do for them. Um, so you get this perfect balance between two different ways of going, and he goes down the middle, which is no need to apologize. The design, I am sure, is honest. But he who draws his pen for one party must expect to make enemies of the other. Um, so the design, I am sure, is honest means what? Just guess. Yeah. Um, people who insult his poem, you sure they're doing it because that's what they believe, but he doesn't really care what they believe. Okay, he, I think the design here actually means his own design. That is, the design of his poem um, is honest. He's sure that he's sure that in writing his poem, he was saying what he really felt, um, how he really felt. Um, what does I am sure tell you, though? The design I am sure is honest. It's a great little phrase. It's part of his conversational style. When someone says, I am sure, what does that usually mean? Sure? No, actually, it doesn't. It means the opposite. He thought it through. Um, OK, yeah. 
kind of like saying it's his opinion that yeah. it's not a state attack, but it's what he believes. Yeah, I am sure means um, I really think, but of course I could be wrong. So I am sure it's one of those really interesting phrases that doesn't mean what it seems to mean. Um, it's more the very fact that he's saying it. Um, if, if, you, if I say to you, um, um, Yehuda is in Rab, um, and then he turns out not to be in Rab and never to have been in Rab, which I think he may never have been, um, um, then you can say to me, why did you say he was in Rab when he isn't? But if I say to you, I'm certain Yehuda is in Rab, what you can say to me is, boy, did you get that wrong? But you couldn't say to me that I'd lied. That is, so if you use words like certain or sure, you're actually hedging. The very fact that there's a perceived need to use those words is a subtle way of hedging um, in human conversation. When you, when, there's, a, there's a huge difference between saying you know something and you're sure of something. Um, there isn't much of a difference in terms of the literal meaning of what you're saying. I'm absolutely certain versus I know. There isn't much of a difference in the literal meaning. Um, but if you're absolutely certain of something and you turn out to be wrong, no one can call you evil or a liar. They can call you stupid, but they can't call you evil. Whereas if you say you know something that you don't know, they can call you a liar. Um, so using words like I'm certain or I'm sure, actually that's a lovely way of just being a little bit cautious. And I think what I am sure there means is no one can know their own motives. Um, I might actually be completely blinded by party loyalties. Um, that's what I am sure means here. I want this to be a poem which isn't written simply to, um, to um, besmirch the other side. I really want to tell the truth the way I see it. I'm not being a political operative. I'm not calling Obama Muslim because I think it'll get me votes. Um, what I'm saying here is what I really believe. You know, the question about Glenn Beck can always be, is he a knave or a fool? I hope none of you love him. But if you do, you know, this is just a hypothetical. Um, but the question about Glenn Beck can be, is he a knave or a fool? He's really good at looking like a fool. Um, do you like him? No, good. I mean, you're looking um, surprised. Um, Beck is really good at looking like a fool, um, but the likelihood is that he's actually, he know, the likelihood is he knows he's lying, um, even though it looks like, he th like he's just wrong, um, but means it. Um, but saying something like, I am sure, means if I'm wrong, it's because I'm deceiving myself, not because I'm deceiving you. Um, and that's what I am sure means is, of course, I, too, can be self-deceived. Self-deception is there, but that's disarming to say, I think that, that, that I'm being honest when I say this. I think I really mean it. I don't think I'm trying to fool you by saying that. That's a really good way of convincing someone you're not trying to fool them. Um, and that's what Dryden is saying here. The design, I am sure, is honest. But, of course, I'm going to make enemies by saying this, but he who draws his pen for one party must expect to make enemies of the other. Now, again, look at that, at that sort of heroic couplet-like balance around the but, even though it's prose. Um, it's, I am, the, I am sure, which is say I'm not sure that my design is honest, but I'm trying. 
Um, but the very fact that I'm on the side of one party means that I will have enemies in the other and I have to expect that. Um, so that there are, there's typical of the couplet, and I'll try not to diagram this. I've been avoiding diagramming this over and over because it's so obvious and I'll try not to do it. But what is typical in a heroic couplet is one line will be A balance, um, here this will be a balance scale, A balanced against B. And the other line will be, let's call this line one, and the other line will be one balanced, oops, one balanced against two. So what you'll typically get in a heroic couplet is a kind of triangular or, um, or, or T um, situation where you have this is balanced against this and then this whole thing is balanced against this. You have A versus B and then line one versus perpendicular to line two. Um, so it's, so typically what you, that's why you'll get butts in the middle of a line. You'll get a illustrative, you'll get a line, then you'll get a second line which um, is in a kind of balanced relation to the first line. And one way that it's a balanced relation to the first line is the first line will be itself a single thing and the second line will be the opposite of that single thing by being a double thing. So you get a single line, then a double thing which is balanced, and there's a third balancing between the single and the double. Does that make sense? Maybe I will be saying this over and over again. Um, but that's, I think that's the way to picture it. Um, that is, there's me, the design I am sure is honest. That's the first part of the sentence. The second part of the sentence is, party on one side versus party on the other. So there's me who am honest and then there are these two parties who are against each other and, and who are gonna have dishonest people on both sides. Um, and I can't help that. So that balanced phraseology is partly about how ba being balanced is being honest. How balancing carefully um, and giving both sides their due, that's what honesty is he, but he who draws his pen for one party must expect to make enemies of the other. For wit and fool are consequence of Whig and Tory, and every man is a knave or an ass to the contrary side. So if you're a Whig, then you're a wit, which means that cleverness rather than truth is what you're after. And if you're um, a fool, if you're a Tory, you're a fool, um, which means that you're not clever enough to go up against the Whigs. Um, Dryden is against the Whigs in this situation. And every man is a knave or an ass to the contrary side. Um, if you're on either side, you'll either be for that side, you'll either be stupid or a liar. Um, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, whether you're a Whig or a Tory. There's a treasury of merits in the fanatic church as well as in the papist. So both sides have a treasury of merits. They're good people on both sides. In the fanatic church, that would be Puritan. In the papist church, that would be Catholic. When he's writing this, he's again saying, but I'm going down the middle. I'm neither a fanatic nor a papist. And yet both sides, you can find a treasury of merits there and a pennyworth to be had of saintship, honesty, and poetry for the lewd, the factious, and the blockheads. So there's even some of all this really good stuff 
on the side of all these really idiotic people on both sides. Um, so again, you're getting that balance. But the longest chapter in Deuteronomy has not curses enough for an anti-Bromingham. Um, so the note, is, the note on that, if you read it, um, will be somewhat um, compacted and complex. But basically, the longest chapter of Deuteronomy is the chapter which um, describes all the, all the penalties and curses that you'll undergo for breaking God's laws. And that's not enough, he says, for those who are um, taking the wrong political view. My comfort is their manifest prejudice to my cause will render their judgment of less authority against me. So again, notice the balances, which is if you're strong on one side, then no one will believe you. The more violently you say that guy's a complete jerk, um, the more you're discrediting yourself. So again, and he's saying it's my comfort. Um, he's not saying, hooray, I will triumph because this is true. Um, what he's saying is, you know, I have to deal with it. Um, the fact that they're so violent will make me look good. Um, and then he says, and this is what you were referring to, yet if a poem have genius, it will force its own reception in the world. So um, you don't have to speak with very great um, ferocity or, or spleen. If a, and this is, I think, an important thing to say. If a poem have genius, it will force its own reception in the world. Now he's starting to say, why talk about this in poetry? And he's giving the beginning of a really interesting answer, which is that if we like great poetry, or if we like a poem and if we think it's great, um, we'll think it's great as a poem, and then we will want to agree with its politics. So there's something interesting here about the two possible ways you could respond to a poem. One is you could say, I hate the politics of this poem. T.S. Eliot is an anti-Semite and a criminal. Um, Ezra Pound was worse. I hate them. They're no good. Their poetry sucks. Um, and the other possibility is to say, um, T.S. Eliot and Ezra Pound, they believed in individualism. And man, their poetry is so good, I too will believe in individualism. Um, or maybe become an anti-Semite. Um, and the question is, which is first, poetry or politics? Um, do you like a poet for their politics? Or do you start embracing politics um, because you like the poetry that a, poetry, that a poet has written? Um, and Dryden here is putting, starting to suggest that, that poetry is prior to politics. Um, that is, that you will approve or disapprove of a poet to some extent um, first, and then maybe you will take on their politics. Now, there are two ways this can go. One is that you can like a poet despite their bad politics. You can disagree with their politics, but still like them as a poet. That's Dryden's relation to Milton. Um, Dryden um, revered Milton, but politically, he was on the opposite side from Milton. Um, the other way it can go is that a poet can seduce you um, into taking their political views um, because you like their poetry so much. Um, both those things can happen, and Dryden is noticing that as another possible bifurcation. But he goes on, if a poem of genius, it will force its own reception in the world, for there's a sweetness in good verse which tickles 
even while it hurts. And no man can be heartily angry with him who pleases him against his will. So now he's saying, I hope my poem gives pleasure to those on the other side. That is, what he's saying about the possibilities of poetry is that it's something we can agree on. Even if we disagree with um, what the other side is saying, even if um, you think 24 is a right-wing maniacal show, or if you think that, um, I don't know what, the rest of TV is all um, insane left-wing um, Democrat, um, even if you think that, you can still like it for um, just for um, how good it is at what it's doing and how much pleasure it can give. And if that happens, what poetry does is rather than um, polarizing people, what it does is it starts lessening the tension, making the tension less grievous. Um, no one can be heartily angry with him who pleases him against his will. So if I write a good poem attacking you, but in a way um, that also makes you laugh, um, that actually will bring us together rather than putting us apart. So here's the theory of poetry and a theory of the bifurcations which the heroic couplet is formally about, which says that this is about bringing things together rather than polarizing them and bringing them apart. That what counts in the balance is the balance rather than the opposition between the things balanced. The commendation of adversaries is the greatest triumph of a writer because it never comes unless extorted. So if someone has to admit that you were pretty funny, um, if someone has to admit that they really like your work, even they disagree with it, then you know it's true. You know that it really is people praising you for your work rather than people praising you because you're on their side. But he says, he doesn't want to sound too boastful, but I can be satisfied on more easy terms. If I happen to please the more moderate sort, I shall be sure of an honest party and in all probability of the best judges, for the least concerned are commonly the least corrupt. So he's saying, so if I can't please either of the two sides that are violently at odds with each other, um, that's okay. All I want to please are those who don't care that much and will just like it for what it is. That is us. We don't care that much, I assume, about Monmouth versus um, Charles II. So if we like this poem without caring about the politics, it turns out that's what Dryden is looking for, is readers. So he writes this really, really bracingly political poem, but he's saying he's not actually writing it for people who have bracing political views on the situation. Um, what he's trying to do is get us um, to enjoy the poem almost as though by putting poetry before politics, we'll be doing the right thing. By saying we'll like the poem as a poem rather than thinking that everything is political, that itself for Dryden becomes a good political outcome. It's still a party that we would belong to the party of those who um, are honest. And that word honest has now um, appeared three times in this. There is the design, I am sure, is honest. There's a treasury of merits in the fanatic church as well as in the papist and a pennyworth to be had of saintship, honesty, and poetry. 
for the lewd, the fascist, and the blockheads. If I happen to please the more moderate sort, I shall be sure of an honest party, an honest political party, and in all probability of the best judges for the least concerned or commonly the least corrupt. And I confess I have laid in for those by rebating the satire where justice would allow it from carrying too sharp an edge. So in order to make this poem pleasing to those who really don't care about the politics, I've actually made the satire less vicious than I would otherwise have made it. Um, where I could do so injustice. Um, I mean, these guys are really terrible, and sometimes you have to call a spade a spade. But where I could be nice, I was nice. Where I could play nice, I did play nice. Those who can criticize so weakly as to imagine I have done my worst may be convinced at their own cost that I can write severely with more ease than I can gently. So again, notice he's saying it's actually really hard to be gentle. Who's he implicitly comparing himself to in the poem by saying that? I want praise for not writing with more ferocity, for not acting more ferociously. Um, I could be a lot more ferocious, but I'm really working hard not to be. So who in the poem works hard not to be ferocious? David. David, yeah. So again, the thing to see here is that Dryden is describing his attitude towards writing the poem and towards the kind of um, punishing satire that the poem instantiates with David's um, um, mildness even under intense provocation. Um, so again, you can take this, this can go in two directions. One direction is um, look at the poem and that will tell you what's going on politically. Um, but for us at any rate, um, it might be more interesting to say look at the politics in the poem and see that as Dryden's theory of poetry what poetry should be doing, the kind of balance, the kind of um, um, splitting the difference, the kind of generosity and good humor and justice that you should have in a poem. The politics is just a fable about Dryden's theory of poetry. Now, the answer is it's both. But for us, probably what's more interesting is to see the politics as giving you a theory of poetry, the political situation that Dryden delineates here as giving you a theory of poetry rather than the poetic theory here in the preface um, giving you a sense of Dryden's, uh, or, or contributing simply to Dryden's political um, um, uh, expression here. Um, if you think this, this is me at my worst, um, baby, I can write a poem against you that will make you really miserable. Um, but I'm such a nice guy, I'm not doing that here. I have but laughed at some men's follies when I could have declaimed against their vices, and other men's virtues I have commended as freely as I have taxed their crimes. And now, if you are a malicious reader, I expect you should return upon me that I affect to be thought more impartial than I am. So now he's saying, so yeah, you know how I'm trying, pretending to be impartial? If you're malicious, you're going to say, yeah, that's a lie, too. You're pretending to be impartial in order um, to, to push your own agenda. So if you say that, guess who's malicious? You. And he knows that we might respond that way. And again, notice the ease of this writing, if you are a malicious reader. 
I expect you should return upon me that I affect to be thought more impartial than I am. But if men are not to be judged by their professions, God forgive you commonwealth's men for professing so plausibly for the government. So my profession is to be a poet. Um, I claim to be a poet. Here profession here means not the job that you have, but what you claim to be. I profess to be a poet. Um, and if you don't judge me by what I profess to be, then how are you going to be judged when you profess to be loyal? Um, you cannot be so unconscionable as to charge me for not subscribing of my name, for that would reflect too grossly upon your own party who never dare, though they have the advantage of a jury, to secure them. Um, what does that mean? You can't be so unconscionable as to charge me for not subscribing of my name? If you don't sign it, then it's anonymous. Yeah. So the important thing to know is Absalom and Kitafel was published anonymously. And in fact, it was um, never published with Dryden's name during his lifetime. Um, people knew it was Dryden um, after a while. People guessed pretty early because after all, who else? Um, and then by the late 1680s and early 1690s, everyone knew Dryden had written it. But it was a point of honor for him never to sign it. Um, so what he's basically, so that might change your mind a little bit about the boastfulness of the um, previous sentences. Um, because he's not saying, look at me, I'm John Dryden. Look at this amazing poem that I've written. Look what a great poet I am. What he's basically saying is, if you like this poem, that's really cool. If, it's a, if, it's a great, if you think it's a great poem, then this poem will have, the poem will have the honor of being thought a great poem. It's not that I, Dryden, will get that. It's that this poem will get that. Um, so if you thought that he sounded, I mean, you may still think he sounds arrogant, but this takes away a little bit from what might sound like over-arrogance in the previous sentences. Um, were you about to say something? Me? Yeah. No. No, okay. I was just thinking, not too much. <laughs> like, it doesn't take away that much. Really? Say more. Um, it does take a certain amount of arrogance in a person to write these sentences down, I think. To think of yourself that highly so that it'll kind of come out on paper. And by, by trying to undercut that a little bit by, by saying something like being more humble afterward, it doesn't really do it for me. Like, it's probably just me. Well, I don't think it's that he's being humble here, but that um, when you were, start reading this, and this isn't the effect he wants. That is, if you're reading Absalom and Kitafel in 1681, you know that you don't know who wrote it. That is, that there's no name on the title page. So what you're getting is, an, is you know, like an anonymous blog entry here. Um, you don't know who he is who's saying these things. Um, so for us, um, we forget that. And what I wanted to do was to get you here so that you would um, have a response that, in fact, the original audience wouldn't have, which is that we don't know who's saying this. So in a way, what he's producing is, a, here's my poem. I think it's really swell. If you do too, that's great, without his ever saying who I am. Um, so the poem has to live or die on its own. Um, it's not, I'm John Dryden, and I approve this poem. Um, it's, um, if you like this poem, 
Um, here's the, the voice of, or another way to put it is that, um, actually this may be a really important way to put it. We are very used and rightly used um, to distinguishing between the voice um, who narrates a fictional work and the author of that work. Um, so that, say, the I in Paradise Lost, um, that when Milton um, uses the word I in Paradise Lost, um, um, the figure who is doing that is Milton in the poem and not Milton outside of the poem. Um, Milton in the poem says, I have been in the Stygian realms lo um, long detained, but now up I reascend to the, to the precincts of light and feel thy sovereign vital lamp. Um, and all of that is the narrator of the poem, whose name we would say is John Milton, but who in a deep way is not the biographical John Milton, but someone that the poem needs to narrate it. The note to the poem, and Paradise Lost also has a note, the note to the poem is Milton speaking as the biographical John Milton, um, or Dryden speaking as the biographical John Dryden. That is, here's a poem where the poet, the I as poet in the poem, can say very powerful and strong things because he or she is in some relation to the events being described. But the poet, by convention, is supposed to say, I hope you like my poem. And then the poem can say, I am writing the most sublime thing ever. But if that's in the poem, then it's part of the fiction. Um, but the poet is supposed to say, I hope you like my poem. Dryden isn't naming himself. And so there's a way, and it's important, that the preface is part of the work. Um, and the way that it's part of the work um, is that it's almost as though the poem itself is speaking and saying, here's this poem, and here I am, the poem. And here is what I hope you will think of me and what I hope you will understand about me. So it's not quite the biographical Dryden. In a literary sense, our literary um, way of processing this is that since we don't know who's speaking it, we don't think it's a biographical person who's quite doing it, but someone who um, whose whole appearance in the world is through the poem itself, is the appearance of the poem and nothing else. Um, it's still fine to think that it's arrogant, but it's not arrogance on behalf of John Dryden. It may be it's arrogance on behalf of the person who is putting this poem out. Um, but at any rate, he's still doing that thing. That is that, okay, I don't sign the poem, um, and if you get down on me for not saying who I am, who's, uh, who, who is writing this poem, well, look at the fact that the same is true for you. When you guys publish pamphlets attacking the king and attacking James and attacking um, all those who are um, supporting the succession of James, you never signed them either, even though you have the advantage of a jury who will always find you innocent. Um, that jury being the jury that he talks about in the poem, um, the London jury that's always packed with people who are going to acquit the, the um, uh, revolutionaries, those who are trying to get rid of James. If you, if you like not my poem, the fault may possibly be in my writing, 
though it is hard for an author to judge against himself. Again, look how disarming that parenthesis is. If you don't like it, maybe it's my writing. But more probably, tis in your morals which cannot bear the truth of it. So here he is. He disarms himself and then attacks you. The violence on both sides will condemn the character of Absalom as either too favorably or too hardly drawn. So there again, you get that. See, I'm just, I'm reporting, you guys decide. Um, here, once more, you get that balance, the same balance that it started with. Some will think it needs no apology, others will receive none. The violence on both sides will condemn the character of Absalom as either too favorably or too hardly drawn, but they are not the violent whom I desire to please. The fault on the right hand, so there's the wrong hand versus right hand, or left hand versus right hand, again, um, a bifurcation. Um, the fault on the right hand, which is also the correct hand, is to extenuate, palliate, and indulge, and to confess, and to confess freely, I've endeavored to commit it. I've tried to be nice to people as much as I could. Besides the respect which I owe his birth, I have a greater for his heroic virtues, that is, Absalom's, and David himself could not be more tender of the young man's life than I would be of his reputation. So again, he's comparing himself to David. But since the most excellent natures are always the most easy, and as being such are the soonest perverted by ill counsels, especially when baited with fame and glory, tis no more a wonder that he withstood not the temptation of Achitophel than it was for Adam not to have resisted the two devils, the serpent and the woman. So Absalom listens to Achitophel just the way Adam listens to Eve. Um, it's really hard not to listen to those devils. So troubling moment. The conclusion of the story, I purposely forbore to prosecute because I could not obtain from myself to show Absalom unfortunate. So do people know what happens to Absalom in the Bible? Yeah. Um, King David's like, right hand man kills him. Yeah, he gets his hair caught in a tree. And David has said, don't kill him. But David's right hand man does kill him anyhow. Um, and what um, Dryden is saying here is, um, I didn't go that far. The story is about the political dynamic. It's not about what will happen. In fact, that's essentially what will happen, but four years later. Um, but then he says, the frame of it was cut out but for a picture to the waist. So he's saying, I'm only showing the top half or one half of the story. Um, the frame of it was but cut out to, um, for a picture to the waist. And if the draft be so far true, tis as much as I designed, were I the inventor, who am only the historian, I should certainly conclude the piece with the reconcilement of Absalom to David. So he's saying, I just have to tell the truth. This is the biblical story. He never breaks frame, by the way. He never says, I'm not telling a biblical story. Um, it's completely obvious that he's talking about current day events, but he never breaks frame there. Um, but if were I the inventor who am only the historian, I should certainly conclude the piece with the reconcilement of Absalom and David, and who knows but that this may come to pass. Things were not brought to an extremity where I left the story. There seems to be room left for a composure. So it's as though he doesn't know what happens in the Bible. But actually what's happening here is so obviously I'm telling a different story, the story of um, Monmouth and Charles. Hereafter, there may only be for pity. So right now, there's room for peace, but in the future, maybe there'll only be room for pity, which would be bad. I have not so much as an uncharitable wish against Achitophel, but, but am content to be accused of a good-natured error and to hope with origin 
that the devil himself may at last be saved. Origen was a very famous um, Christian um, um, philosopher and theoretician, I think of the second century, who was eventually burned as a heretic. Um, and was, he was very interested in Gnosticism. And so his hope was that everyone would be saved, including Satan, and therefore including Achitophel. For which reason in this poem he is neither brought to set his house in order nor to dispose of his person afterwards as he and his wisdom shall think fit. God is infinitely merciful and his vice regent is only not so because he is not infinite. So Charles is also infinitely merciful. And then he has um, a theory of satire which you get here. And we'll be reading a lot of satires. The true end of satire is the amendment of vices by correction. So satire, says Dryden, is meant to change how people act, that they should um, read the satire and say, oh yeah, that's me, and act differently. Um, does anyone know Swift's famous line about satire? Satire, he says, is a glass that is a mirror in which everyone can see every face but his own. So it's a kind of reverse mirror, one in which you think you're never the object of satire. It's all those around you. Swift didn't think that satire would change the way anyone ever acted. Um, for Swift, satire is simply the expression of his own rage or indignation. But Dryden, at least, is claiming that satire is meant to pressure people who are um, behaving badly into seeing it and even laughing at it and even changing what they're like. Um, the true end of satire is the amendment of vices by correction. And he who writes honestly is no more an enemy to the offender than the physician to the patient when he prescribes harsh remedies to an inveterate disease. For these are only in order to prevent, and here's a little warning, the surgeon's work of an ense rescindendum, which means the, the necessary cutting off of the diseased piece, um, basically an amputation. So what I'm trying to do is prevent amputation. Amputation here would mean execution of Monmouth, which I wish not to my very enemies. God forbid any of them should be executed. To conclude all, if the body politic have any analogy to the natural, that is the political body has any analogy to the natural body, in my weak judgment, an act of oblivion were as necessary in a hot, distempered state as an opiate would be in a raging fever. That is, that um, everyone should forgive and forget. That's what an act of, uh, of oblivion would be. OK, we didn't really get to the poem. Um, what I think you should do is just reread it for Tuesday. Um, it will be good to have reread it. Um, and then we'll have a week off after that. Um, Tuesday's the only day we have class next week. Um, so reread it, and uh, we'll talk about the poem itself on Tuesday. So Dragon was on the side of.